Genesis chapter 2, we see a picture of the man, Adam, walking in the garden with God, completely dependent on God for everything. For everything. He, he had no knowledge of good and evil. So to find out if something was good or bad or, or not healthy for him, he always had to talk to the father. Father, is this okay? Father, what about that? Father, am I okay to do this? It was a, an, an atmosphere of paradise, complete dependency. Now, as we also talked about last week, dependency in our culture is too quickly associated with codependency, and that's a different thing. Codependency is when you're dependent on another person who's, who is not helping you, who basically the dependency you have on them is unhealthy because they have a dependency on you that's unhealthy, and neither one of you are very healthy, and so you kind of go around and around. Dependency on God is absolutely perfect health, spiritually, physically, and otherwise, because God is perfect. And he is one that we can absolutely depend on. We can depend on him. Adam completely depended on God. And then along comes the creation of Eve. The helper, as we're told in verse 18, a helper suitable for Adam. And God opened up Adam and took from his side and created Eve fashioned the woman it tells us in verse 22 and then in verse 23 when she's brought to Adam he looks at her and he says this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man the words there are Isha for woman and Ish man she'll be called woman because she was taken from man so now you've got this picture of complete dependence on each other in a marriage setting now the marriage was perfect why was the marriage perfect? Because they didn't know good and evil. Because they were completely dependent on God first. And you have this, this triune relationship, man, woman, and God. That is the ideal marriage. Now, I was just mentioning, came back from a marriage conference this weekend, and the bottom line, it was such good teaching, but the bottom line was, if I want to be a better husband for my wife, what I need to do is depend on Jesus more. If Cheryl wanted to be a better wife for me, she doesn't do it by trying to meet my needs. She does it by focusing more on Jesus. Because you see, the more we focus on Jesus, the more we're able to love like he loves. The more we're able to be like him. But there's something inter interesting. As much as chapter 2 is a story of dependence, chapter 3 we could call Independence Day. It's the day when man decided, when woman decided to go on their own. Independence, no more dependence, freedom from dependence, and we're all big on freedom and independence in America. Oh, we love our freedom. But I'm not sure that freedom is all that it's cracked up to be. I found out that I'm no good on my own. <laughs> when I'm truly free to do whatever I want, often what I want hurts myself and others. So true dependency on one that's perfect is the ideal relationship. We get caught up in something in Christianity that I, that I think that is interesting uh, in our relationship with God. Instead of simply depending on Him and deepening our relationship with Him, we try really hard to be like Him. In fact, I'm sure you've heard messages and sermons before about being like Jesus. You've probably heard the, the verse quoted, Be holy because I'm holy. And I think it's probably better translated, Be holy because I'm holy. You're going to be holy because I'm holy. My holiness is going to rub off on you. And in our Christian lives, sometimes we work so hard to be like Jesus. And I think that Jesus would say, it's not be just like me. It's just like me. Just like me. 
just get into a relationship with me. Understand that the strength to change, to, to live a life that, that is more like Jesus, doesn't come from us. The power is not mine. Now, on my own, I mess it up every single time. But if my heart and my life are focused on liking Jesus, loving Jesus, looking at Him, being in a relationship with Him, it begins to work in me. It begins to change me. But Genesis chapter 3, we left Adam and Eve in paradise. And they had beautiful bodies. They were fed by the very tree of life. They had innocent minds to the point of being naked and unashamed. And they were as God intended them to be. They were one flesh, Ish and Isha, man and woman. But best of all, the thing I love about chapter 2 is it's a picture of man and woman walking in sweet fellowship and complete, and complete dependence on God as their father. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Things are about to change. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Let's pray. Father, as we delve into chapter 3, we recognize, Lord, those of us who have actually read this in the past, we know. Genesis chapter 3 is where it all falls apart. This is the place in the Bible where we are introduced to the beginning of sin, to the beginning of deception, to the beginning of the way Satan works. And I pray, Father, that as we study your word tonight, that you would give us insight. Specifically, Lord, I ask that you would give us insight into the craftiness and the cunning of Satan, that you will show us how he works, that you will give us wide open eyes. Father, Jesus said for us to be innocent as doves, but he also told us to be as sharp, as crafty, as cunning, as wolves. And so, Father, I pray, or as serpents, actually. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the serpent for who he is. Understand how he works. And create, Father, in us a dependency on you. Help us to understand more than we came in to get. Show us your word tonight, Father. And speak through me, get me out of the way, and let us hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The serpent. Interesting, the serpent. He's not what we know serpents to be today. Because we're told in the curse that happens in the serpent that he's thrown down on his belly and from that point on he was going to slither on the ground and eat of the dust of the earth. The serpent was not like snakes as we know them today. Oftentimes you see the mythological versions of Adam and Eve in the garden. Normally you see an apple tree. Okay? Nowhere in Genesis chapter 3 does it tell us that the fruit they ate was an apple. But we see an apple tree because we make that, you know, illogical leap. It's an apple. Eve ate the apple. She didn't eat an apple. She ate a piece of fruit. We don't know what the fruit was like. But it was not an apple. So go ahead and have apple pie. You're okay. But we see in those pictures an apple tree. We see Eve standing there and we see a snake coiled around the tree. But he wasn't a snake. He was a serpent. And he was different than we see snakes today. Okay, what did he look like? I don't know. Did he have arms and legs? Did he almost have more of a human appearance? I'm, I'm not sure. We have no idea. But we do know who inhabited the serpent. We know that the inhabitant was Satan. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 tells us that the great dragon was thrown down. This I believe is something that will happen in the future. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. 
okay, the great serpent of old. John tells us right there in the writing of that, as Jesus gives John revelation, that the serpent of old was thrown down. That the serpent of old was Satan. He's one and the same. Now, if I said something confusing to you, let me back up. Actually, Revelation 12, I believe, is talking about the throwing down of, serpent, uh, of Satan out of heaven. He will be cast out ultimately later on. Okay, That is to come. What do you mean? I mean that he still has access to heaven. The book of Job tells us that Satan comes before God in heaven. As the sons of God were in heaven presenting themselves before God, Satan shows up and starts to point out and talk about Job. We know that Satan has access to heaven. He's been kicked out. He doesn't have the rights and privileges thereof, but he does have access to the heavens. There will be a time when his access is completely shut off, his backstage pass is revoked, and he does not have any more ability to go into heaven at all. Okay? But we know, bottom line, the serpent of old. We know who he was. We know who inhabited that serpent. It was Satan. Now, the serpent is interesting in Scripture. A very interesting symbol. We see serpent, serpents, plural, showing up every now and then. For example, we know that Satan used the serpent as a means of treachery against Eve, as we'll see tonight. We also read an interesting story in Exodus chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 10 through 21, it's the story of Moses, and he had his staff. And if you saw, you saw the Ten Commandments, right, with Charlton Heston, the, the real famous one. You may have also seen Prince of Egypt, so we all know how it happens. He took his staff and threw it down, and it turns into a snake, and, and then his snake, Cobra, usually in the movies, eats the other two snakes or cobras. One thing I just want to, I just discovered this last week that I want to pass on to you. Moses' staff probably wasn't a snake at all. As a matter of fact, the word for serpent that's used in Exodus 7 is a different word than the word for serpent used in Genesis and that same word for serpent, meaning snake, used in other places in the Bible. The word in Exodus 7 is tanim. And tanim is literally a marine or land monster. And I'll put it to you this way. I think, locationally, that it's more likely, and this is going to sound weird, but I think it's more likely that Moses' staff turned into a crocodile than a snake. Snakes wouldn't have been as indigenous to the area as crocodiles all throughout the Nile. And I think when he dropped his staff, they turned into a crocodile because the word, again, is a marine or land monster. That's what the word means. Now, the word for snake is nakash, which is the word that's used in Genesis chapter 1. Okay, so Moses' staff... Though it's called a serpent in scripture, that's a mistranslation. It's not the right word. It's more likely something, it was some kind of a marine monster. I think a crocodile would be cool and I'd love to see Hollywood do that. But we also see that throughout the Bible, though Satan takes good things and twists them to make them bad, that God in turn takes the horrible and turns it into something good. Romans chapter 8 verse 28, we know that God causes all things, all things, all things to work for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Well, how does this apply to the serpent? Flip in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. Which, by the way, the study of the whole word of God is so important because if people look at the book of Numbers for what it's purported to be, that is a book of the numerology of Israel, of the numbering of the Israelites, genealogies. If I thought, oh, it's just a book of genealogies, then I'd skip the whole thing altogether. There are stories in numbers that will curl the hair on the back of your neck, if you have hair on the back of your neck. 
stories in the book of Numbers that are absolutely amazing. This is one of them, starting at verse 4. They set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. <laughs> the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. Okay, up to that point, what kind of food did they have? Only manna from heaven. <laughs> We loathe this miserable food. How about, well, we needed meat, Father, so he gives them quail. We have no water to drink. Every time they got thirsty, water gushed from some source. God always provided. As a matter of fact, in looking at the dependency we talked about in chapter 2, why was it that God actually made the Israelites wander in the desert for 40 years? It wasn't punishment. It was dependency. He was retraining an entire people to be dependent on him. The whole golden calf incident was another Independence Day. It was, hey, this is our right to do what we want, and we're going to create our God. We are independent. And so God said, let me teach you once again. I thought bringing you out of Egypt would teach you to be dependent on me. About 400 years of slavery would teach you dependency on me as your father. Apparently that didn't work. Let's take another 40 years and go over the material one more time. So by the time they got to Canaan, there was some sense of understanding of dependency on God that for 40 years he provided for them in the wilderness. Well, they're in the middle of this situation and it's not getting that, that much better. They're whining, they're crying, they're weeping. Verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents, and this is snakes, among the people and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, no duh. Because we have spoken against the Lord and you, intercede with the Lord, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Now this is so weird. What God does, and you may have heard the story, but think about how bizarre this is. This is the same God who at the mountain said, don't make any graven images. And what does God tell the people to do? Make a graven image. Listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. And set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it up on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Whining, crying, belly aching in the desert. And God said, I've got to teach him yet again another lesson. And he sent the snakes. But then he uses the very thing that is causing them pain as a source of salvation for their bodies. The snakes that were biting them now goes up on a pole, a bronze snake. And if they just look at it in faith, they're healed and they don't die. John chapter 3, verse 14, we find out what God was really thinking. Because Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Why would God, after saying, don't make graven images, why would he then have Moses make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole? Because the snake was the symbol of their suffering. 
It was the very thing that was causing them pain and death. And by looking at the symbol of their suffering, they could be saved. What's the connection? Jesus is, on the cross, the symbol of our suffering. Jesus is the symbol of sin. Now take that in for a minute. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, the Holy One, the One that we exalt as Lord and Savior, is, on the cross, the symbol of sin. Paul takes it a step further. He said in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus became the symbol of sin and suffering. In other words, and this, by the way, I think is one of the reasons why we take communion and why God calls us as often as we gather together to take communion. Why? Because it focuses on the crucifixion. It reminds us that this, this bruised, bloody, brutally broken man on the cross, that that is the end result of sin. That's what sin does. That's where you end up. Because for every single one of us, that is where we belong. That's what we've earned. We haven't earned our grace. We haven't earned forgiveness. We haven't earned God's love. He's given that to us. But he says to receive it, I want you to do one thing. I want you to believe in my son. I want you to look at him, the symbol of suffering and sin. Believe in him. And if you do so, just like when the people looked at the fiery serpent on the pole, if you look at Jesus on the cross and believe, you will live. You will live. Interesting, the serpent. Folks, the way of things is that Satan constantly intends to take the good of God and turn it to evil. And it goes all the way back to the garden. But even in the garden, as you'll see tonight, God has turned for good this evil. He has turned it into good for anyone who will look to his son for salvation. Back to Genesis chapter 3. Second part of verse 1. We know the serpent's in the garden now. And the serpent said to the woman. So now we know the serpent could speak. And he said, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we can eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or, or you will die. Okay. Understand something here at this point. God's word at this place in history was pretty basic. It was pretty simple. In fact, there were really only a couple of memory verses. Be fruitful and multiply. And don't eat from this tree. That's it. All Adam and Eve had to remember was to be fruitful and multiply, which was fun in and of itself. And don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was God's word. They didn't need Bible studies because that was it. That was the whole package. It was that simple. Genesis chapter 2 verse 17 tells us that from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day of you, that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now watch closely here. Because I think we get some insight into the subtlety of Satan and how he actually works. The means by which Satan deceives us even today. Right now today. Number one. If you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. The first thing Satan does, and he does this over and over, 
is question the word of God. That's the first thing Satan does. Has, indeed, uh, he says, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, he hasn't said anything bad at this point. He's just raised a question. Well, did God say that? Are, are you, did God tell you not to eat of that tree? No big deal, right? I mean, we learn by asking questions. Problem is, when the question is asked to cast doubt, which is what Satan is doing, he's not seeking information. He knows. He knows what the two memory verses are at this point. He knows that they have been told, don't eat from the tree, but he plants a question in his mind. Did God really say you can't eat from, from this particular tree? Did he say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What's the deal here, Eve? He's beginning to wedge himself in. Folks, I believe that when questions are asked to cast doubt, what we're talking about here is liberalism. Now, I'm not talking about political liberalism. Okay, That's a different thing. You know, liberals, liberals and conservatives in the political world we're not going to get into tonight. It's enough just to talk about religion with our friends, much less politics. But liberalism is simply casting the shadow of doubt. Is scripture really inspired by God? How do you know? Are the things that we have in the New Testament truly of Jesus? How do we really know that Jesus said all the things that we have in red? Are you sure? How are you sure? Can you prove that God exists? There's a lot of scientific evidence out there for evolution, isn't there? What are you going to do with that? I, mean, I know your Bible says that there's, you know, created in six days and God rested on the seventh. Obviously, he got tired. Liberalism. It's questioning. It's taking God's truth and it's throwing questions into it. Not questions designed to learn. Those are a lot of the things that we ask in here. Afterwards, whenever we're done with the Bible study, I will spend sometimes a lot of time just talking with people, and I love it, asking questions. Okay, you said this, and we see this in Scripture, but what, what does this mean here, or what do you think about that? And a lot of times, I go home with a new question in my mind that makes me want to study and know more. That's not liberalism, and that's not casting doubt. That's seeking answers. That's seeking first the kingdom. Good job. That kind of question you ask. But a question asked for one reason, and that's to cast doubt or to shed a shadow of doubt on things. Well, that's liberalism. What do you mean liberalism? Well, I've, I've told you all before about the Jesus Seminar. This is a group of college professors in Texas who got together and began to disseminate scripture and try and break it down and boil it down. And when they were all through with their quite theological and heady research, they decided that the only thing that they're absolutely sure that Jesus ever actually said, all by himself, was, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Everything else is suspect. I talked about here in one time that they actually have taken scripture and they have color-coded it. The red words are the words of Jesus. So you have one verse, that verse, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's in red. Then all the stuff that is in serious question is in gray. And then the stuff that's in black is the stuff that, no, there's no way he possibly could have said that. It's liberalism. It's taking God's word and going, I don't know that we can really take it for what it is. I'm not sure that we can actually believe this book. It's casting doubt. And that kind of questioning is never the kind of questioning that is spoken by a person who wants to know Jesus. That kind of questioning is always spoken from the position of, I want to undermine God's word. And that's exactly what Satan is doing here. He starts by asking a question. 
Hey, what did God really say about the trees? Did he say you couldn't eat a any tree in the whole entire garden, Eve? Folks, saying the Bible does not necessarily mean what it said is, is personal interpretation. That's the key. It's whatever you want it to say. It's allegory. I'll share this with you. I won't say what church, but there's a pastor at a church here in town who does not believe that there is a literal Satan. That blew my mind. I, I want to have a conversation, and I haven't had the conversation with this pastor. This actually came to me through a friend, and the pastor was saying, I don't really think there's truly a person called Satan. I, Satan is just that, that kind of that allegorical picture of evil in our world. And I'm like, okay, that's like, that's like being in World War II and saying there's not really a Hitler. Um, that's just kind of the bad feelings that are over right now in Europe, and, and we have to go up and, and go against. There's not really a, a Saddam Hussein, you know. There never really was. He was just kind of a symbol that, that George Bush put up there so that we could have someone to target. Osama bin Laden, he's a myth. There's just, you know, there's just kind of some darkness over in that part of the world that we need to deal with. Come on, no Satan. How do you deal with the fact? And I'm going off a little bit here, but how can you deal with the fact that Jesus was tempted by Satan? But he had a conversation. Did Jesus had a conversation with an allegory? Was he tempted by a metaphor? Was, was Jesus out there talking? And Jesus himself refers to Satan several times. Was he just referring to Satan because he knew that we're just too simple-minded to understand that evil is just this generic, vague thing? No. The Bible is clear. And yet, and, and see, this upsets me so much but because we're talking about a pastor at a church in Anacortes who was up every Sunday morning teaching his congregation the Word of God. And this pastor doesn't believe one of the most fundamental teachings in the Word of God that there is a Satan. He took the form of a serpent in Genesis chapter 3 very early on in Scripture. And you see him throughout Scripture wreaking havoc in people's lives. Do you want to know how to fight your enemy? You start by knowing who your enemy is. By being aware of your enemy. And by being aware of what your enemy does. Look at Isaiah chapter 45. Flip in your Bibles, if you will, over there. Isaiah 45. A good rule of thumb for Isaiah is it's right smack dab in the middle of Scripture. You almost let the Bible fall open to the center, and you're going to either be in Psalms or Isaiah. You're going to be real close there. Isaiah chapter 45, in verse 18. You may remember a bit of verse 18. We read it when we were studying chapter 1. For thus says the Lord... Okay, catch that first. This is God speaking. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it tohu vabohu, a waste place. But he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. So gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge. Who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. And there's none except me. Now, focus in here, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved. 
all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, my, the Word, the Word, the Word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me, you're going to recognize this, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Paul says that about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 verse 11. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. Verse 24, they will say of me, only in the Lord our righteousness and strength. Isaiah chapter 46 verse 11 tells us, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. What are you doing here, Rick? I'm focusing you all on some verses to recognize that God himself says his word stands. That it is his word. You can question it all you want. As a matter of fact, in, in the verse we just read, he says in verse 21, Go ahead, set forth your case. Give it your best shot. Try and undermine scripture. And people have been trying to undermine the Bible for 2,000, 3,000 years. Trying to say, oh, it's inconsistent. It's illogical. It doesn't work. And it does. No book in the history of mankind has, has held up against such intense heat and criticism. And yet when it all comes down, all people can do is try to cast doubt on Scripture. Because it is a book that is not underminable. Amazing. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19, Peter says, We have the prophetic word more sure. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Why do people believe the Bible to be so solid? Why would you put your faith in a book like this? Even if the book claims to be solid, why would you believe it? Let me share something with you, and a few of you have already heard this. So I'm going to move through it really quickly. But I believe there are enough of you in here who haven't heard it that I want to share this one more time. We talked about this when we were studying 2 Peter. But check this out. Just to understand validity of Scripture and the power of the Word. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament referring to this Messiah that God promised would come. Over 300. Most of these prophecies were written over a period of about 700 years from about 1000 B.C. or a little more than that to around 400 B.C. Okay? Though some of them, some of these prophecies, you'll see this tonight, even go back as far as Eve's curse. I don't know if you realize this, but in the curse of Eve is the first prophecy of the Messiah. We'll see that tonight. But prophecies like the following, that the Messiah would be, I'm going to give you eight of them real quick, and you can jot these down if you're taking notes, or you can just listen. Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, tells us the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah, a specific Bethlehem, because there was more than one. So Micah tells us the precise Bethlehem Messiah would be born in. Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, tells us that the Messiah would be preceded by a forerunner who went about announcing his coming. Forerunner like John the Baptist. Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12 tells us that the Messiah would be called, and this one's a weird one, but very cool, that the Messiah would be called Branch. Branch. The word is Netzer, and it's the root word for Nazarene. The Messiah would be called a Nazarene, a branch. That's what Nazarene means. You remember Jesus of Nazareth. 
Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 tells us the Messiah would come humble riding on a donkey's back which is exactly what happened on the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem just as was promised. Zechariah chapter 11 verse 12 and 13 tells us that Messiah would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver and the silver would be used to purchase a potter's field. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We have the exact amount. And that money was used to buy a potter's field. And it was in that potter's field that Judas hung himself. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 tells us that an innocent man, Messiah would be an innocent man who would be tried on false charges but would offer no defense. Picture of Jesus on his trials the night before the crucifixion. He didn't offer a single word of defense. He could have. He could have opened his mouth and said one or two sentences and Pilate would have let him off. Because the charges were false and Jesus could prove they were false. But he didn't. Exactly as it was prophesied. Psalm chapter 22 tells us the Messiah would be crucified. Tells us that his hands and his feet would be pierced. At a time where crucifixion didn't even exist in our world. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 says that Messiah would be assigned a grave with the wicked but he would be buried with the rich. The grave that Jesus would have been assigned had it been left to the Romans, he would have been thrown into a pauper's grave along with the two criminals who died with him, a grave with the wicked. That's what his assignment would have been. But Joseph of Arimathea came up and said to Pilate, can we have the body of Jesus? And Pilate said, fine. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, took the body of Jesus into the garden tomb at Golgotha, his tomb that he owned, and buried him there, a grave with the rich. Now, eight prophecies, eight amazing, astounding prophecies. There's a book by a man named Peter Stoner. It's called Science Speaks. And Peter Stoner goes through in this book and shows statistical probabilities of one person like Jesus fulfilling prophecies. Listen to this. The statistical probability that Jesus could fulfill eight out of eight prophecies is one in ten to the seventeenth power. That's one chance in ten with seventeen zeros after it that one man could fulfill eight out of eight prophecies. But ratchet it up a notch. Double that to 16 prophecies. Let's say one man could fulfill 16 out of 16 prophecies that said he was the Messiah. The chances of him doing that is now 1 in 10 to the 48th power. To understand the magnitude of that, it would roll up into a big ball enough... It, okay, I skipped something that you got to understand. Eight out of eight prophecies... It said, and you may have heard this before, that if you took 10 to the 17th power, that many quarters, it would fill the state of Texas two feet deep. That's how big it is. 1 in 10 to the 48th power, you take those same quarters, now you have 10 to the 48th power number of quarters, and that would make a ball that was so big, it would be able to reach the sun and back 15 times. Massive. We're talking probabilities here, though. Take it up to 48 prophecies. Let's say that I, I was able to fulfill 48 out of 48 prophecies of the Messiah. <laughs> I couldn't even fulfill half of one. <laughs> but if a person could fulfill 48 out of 48 prophecies, now the number becomes 1 in 10 to the 157th power. 10 with 157 zeros. It's impossible. It's ridiculous. And it's only 48 prophecies. What is the statistical probability that one man could fulfill 300 out of 300 prophecies. Folks, it's not even calculable. 
It's immeasurable. It's incomprehensible. And Peter says, we have the prophetic word. We have the prophetic word of God made more sure. Is Jesus who he said he was? It's impossible. You can't even conceive of him not being the Messiah. Because in Old Testament scripture, there's over 300 prophecies of the Messiah, and he fulfilled every single one. And I just shared eight of them. I don't know, can we trust this book? Does it seem solid to you? But see, the liberal mind wants to just cast enough doubt that you walk out of here and someone says, but Jody, the Bible contradicts itself. And Jody walks away going, does it? What if the Bible really is contradictory? Maybe everything I believe is phony. Maybe it's really not true. Maybe I can't trust in this book. And Satan smiles and goes, yeah. Yeah, That's my first attack. Just to undermine what you believe. Folks, questioning scripture to learn is one thing. Questioning scripture to doubt is liberalism. And when Satan attempts to create doubt in your own mind, you can respond in two ways. You have two opportunities. Because I guarantee if he hasn't already done it, and I'm sure he has, that he will again. Satan will try to create doubt in your mind in your following after Jesus and in your trusting his word. You have two things you can do to respond to that doubt. Number one, you can study to know the word. Study it. Read it for yourself. If someone says the Bible contradicts itself, say, show me. And I want to give you just permission, if if that's the right word to use here, permission not to be afraid to look for it. It took me until I was a youth pastor before I finally stood up and said, look, if the Bible is truly God's word, then why am I worried that I might find out that it's not true? Ask me any question you want. I'll study and I'm going to find the answer. And in over, what is it now, a lot of years of ministry, a lot of questions asked, I have never once not been able to find the answer in Scripture. And that's not because I'm all that. It's because Scripture is. Study to know the word. 2 Timothy 2.15. This is why Paul says, Study to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. How do you rightly handle the word of truth? How do you rightly handle the Bible? Study it. Read it. Go to Bible studies like this one tonight. Congratulations, you're on your way. (laughs) Study the word. Or, you can also, when Satan attempts to create doubt in your mind, you can shrink back just like Eve. Which leads us into what Eve does. By, By the way, why does Satan approach Eve instead of Adam? That's a rhetorical question. I'm going to answer it. Why does the serpent approach the woman instead of the man? Let me just put this out as a possibility. When God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what day did he say that on? Day six. Creation of man in the garden. Day six. Woman was not created on day six. Woman was created later. How do you know that, Rick? Well, because I know that God paraded the animals before Adam, all of the animals for him to name, to show him that he didn't have a partner there. So that's God's way. He sat down Adam and he said, I want you to name the animals. And so Adam started to name them. Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Platypus, Mr. and Mrs. Cat, Mr. and Mrs. Dog, Mr. and Mrs. Cow, Mr. and Mrs. Hog. And he started to go, Mr. and Mrs. Everybody has a Mrs. 
Where's my missus? Where's my counterpart? You see, God always, this is the way God works. He, he shows us what we're missing. And then he fills the need. So Adam was there. It took all that time. Eve was not created on day six. Which means that the commandment not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was brought to Eve second hand. Possibly. Now, sure, God could have told Eve himself. He walked with him. He talked with Eve and Adam. They were in the garden. They had fellowship together. But it's interesting to me that Eve being created second might have gotten her word second hand. And I say that only to say this. Don't get the word second hand. Study to show yourself approved. Why do you believe what you believe? Well, because my pastor said so. Why, why do you believe what you believe? Well, because mom and dad, that, you know, we go to church. It's the family thing. And my dad says, if I don't believe it, he's going to kick me out of the house. So I have to. You know, I don't have any choice right now, but now when I'm out of the house. Study to show yourself approved. Believe it because you believe it, Mike. Not because mom and dad drove back to Issaquah to show you how important it was. You believe it. Study to show yourself approved. Don't shrink back like Eve. How did Eve shrink back? Well, this is the second thing that happens in Satan's program. It's reactionary backpedaling. I've already talked about this with evolution. That Christians backpedal by saying, we've got to find a way to fit evolution into the creation story. No, we don't. Because the Word says that, the, that we were created, that the earth was created in six days. That's what the Word, word says. That's where I start. And then I look at other options, standing on the firm word of God, assuming that the word is truth. Because it has shown itself over and over to be. Reactionary backpedaling. Too many Christians are too easily, folks, thrown off balance. We have God's word. We have nothing to be afraid of. We get thrown off balance because we don't really know the word that we cling to. Ephesians 4.14 describes it this way. Paul says, we're not to be like children. You know, like children, if you tell them one thing one day, they believe it. And if you tell them the exact opposite the next day, they'll believe it because they just, okay, whatever you say, Dad, I'll believe you. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, and by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. No, we are to know the Word. Folks, even though the word was simple for Eve, Satan's questioning threw her off balance. And so what did Eve do? She became a legalist. So we're talking about two problems here. Liberalism, which challenges, cast doubt on the word of God. And legalism, which is a reactionary response to the questions of the world. Well, what do you mean? The best way to define legalism in my own mind is legalism is attempting to shore up God's word. It's adding to God's word. Because God's word in and of itself, it's not enough. Grace by itself is not enough. It's got to be grace plus what I do. Legalism is saying that what God tells us is good, but we've got to add to it. And so what Eve does is she says, hey, you know what? I'm not supposed to, to eat of the tree or even, I can't even touch the tree. God never told Eve she couldn't touch the tree. She added that. She's backpedaling now. Satan has her on her heels and she says... From the fruit of the trees of the garden we can eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it. Well, Eve, God didn't say you can't touch it. Why would Eve say don't touch it? Because Eve is trying to shore up God's word, to make it stronger. We can't even touch the apple, the fruit, sorry. 
We can't even touch the tree. Well, but God didn't say that. He just said don't eat it. That's all he said. Interesting. Following Christ, folks, is not about being on the defensive. It's about being on the offensive. To truly be a follower of Jesus, you will become offensive. That's what happens. Well, how do you know that, Rick? Well, I know that Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Well, what's that got to do with defensiveness or offensiveness? Well, let me ask you this. Do gates attack? How often do gates go forward in battle and attack? Or is it that gates are attacked? And Jesus said the gates of hell will not overpower the church. In other words, the church is to be on the attack. The church is going to go up against the gates of hell, and the gates of hell can't keep us, can't keep us back. The gates of hell cannot keep me from bashing them down and going in and grabbing lost people right and left if I am part of the church of Jesus Christ. I've got a power that is greater than the gates of hell themselves. And that's offensive Christianity. Not defensive, but see, Eve is being defensive. I, you know, I've got to shore up God's word. I've got to add to it. I've got to strengthen my case because I'm, I'm being questioned here. It's unfortunate. Folks, legalism is not only reactive, but it undermines God's word, just like liberalism does. It says that God's word is not enough. I've got to add to it, which is why we have 2,000 years of church traditions that are never talked about in Scripture at all. Last week, we talked about divorce. One of the questions that was brought up to me, a good question, it was a Catholic question. Well, what about annulments? Well, Annulments are not mentioned in Scripture. Is it, is it a good idea? I'm not even going to go there. The bottom line is, the Bible never talks about annulling a marriage. What God says is, man, man, woman, you become one flesh. Oh, well, we're going to get an annulment. God says, really? I don't find that in my word. What's the idea with the moment? Why do I bring that up right now? Because what it is, is it's adding to. It's legalism. It's adding something to God's word. It's saying, Jesus said to take communion. As often as you're together, break the bread, drink the wine. Remember my body and blood that was broken for you. And I grew up in a church where you had to take it every Sunday morning. And if you missed Sunday morning, they offered it Sunday night. Because you've got to make sure and take it at least once a week. On the first day of the week. And you couldn't take it on any other day of the week because it was only offered on the first day of the week in Scripture. Well, it doesn't say that. We know that it was offered on the first day of the week. We don't know that that's the only day it was offered. But we've got to make sure we get it right. We've got to get it right because we've got to be just like Jesus. And the Bible says, no, just like Jesus. Just like me. Be in a relationship with me. You don't need to add to anything that I've said. I'm going off a little bit here. Galatians chapter 1 verse 6. Let Paul go off for me. Paul says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. For a different gospel. Which is not really another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Galatians 1.8. But even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. He said, be accursed. 
As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you receive, he is to be accursed. Now, Dave and I have had a lot of talks about Mormonism. This verse blows it straight out of the water. And I'm not saying that to be mean-spirited, folks. It's the truth. The foundation of Mormonism is that an angel brought a new gospel to Joseph Smith. But this verse says that even if we or an angel from heaven should bring a new gospel to you, whoever does that is to be accursed. I'll even let the Mormons have the angel Moroni. They can have him. They can believe that he actually came down and gave it to Joseph Smith. It doesn't make any difference because the Bible says even if that did happen, it's illegitimate. Why do we keep wanting to add to what God has already given us? Revelation 22.18 I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Now listen to this. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Now if you've read Revelation, you know that's not a pretty picture. It's a little scary. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written about in this book. Man, Revelation 22, 18 and 19 tells us if you add to legalism or try to take away from liberalism, either way, you're in a world of hurt. You have what you need in Jesus Christ. It's called grace. And grace is that which saves us. We don't have to shore up as God word, God's word. Now, number three, Satan attacks with a full assault, contradiction, and lies against Eve. First the question, followed by the backpedaling, and now Satan comes on full bore with the lies. Now, Eve's already back on her heels. She's already worried. She's already not sure what the truth is here. And so Satan begins to take the truth and completely twist it up into lies. Look at verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. Lie number one. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God. Lie number two. Knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw, listen to this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Folks, first thing to know is that this is the first lie from the father of lies. And Eve was deceived by the lie. The knowledge of good and evil came with eating the fruit. All Eve really knew to this point was that God had said, don't eat it. Don't eat it. Until the question why was introduced. And it's a question that I struggle with my own daughter. Hen and I have had, very, have had several questions or, or conversations about why. Hannah, it's time for you to go to bed right now. Why? I'm not tired. Because I said so. Why do you always... And this is the most recent conversation. Sitting up on Hannah's bed at night, bedtime, and she's asking me, why do you just say because I said so? Part of the reason is because as a parent, I'm just exhausted and I don't want to argue about it anymore. Part of it is I may not even have a good reason at all, but I'm your dad, so do it. That's enough. That's it. And those are not good reasons. I'll tell you what the good reason is. And it's the reason that most of the time is on my heart. Sometimes I don't give Hannah the answer for what I've asked of her. Because I want her to learn how to trust a father. Because I want her to learn how to take someone at their word. 
Because my hope is that someday there will be a transition. I've already seen it in Hannah's life in bits and pieces. A transition from trusting her earthly father to trusting her heavenly father. You know what Paul said? He said we're given a peace, not that comes from understanding, but that passes understanding. A peace that I can know, that I know, that I know, that what God's telling me to do is right, even if I don't understand it. That's, that's dependent living. That's beautiful. That's the place God wants us to be, in, in dependence on Him, even to the point where God says, hey, don't eat the tree, don't eat of the fruit of the tree, we go, okay, why? doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Now, God lovingly told Adam what would happen. And the day you eat of it, you'll die. But even if he hadn't, it doesn't matter. Trust me. Take me at my word. Folks, listen, Satan isn't just lying to Eve here. He is challenging God's fairness. God would put that good-looking fruit in the, in the garden here, and you can't even eat of it? Oh, come on. Eat it. You're not going to die. The truth is, God just doesn't want you to be like Him. The truth is that God is sitting up here on His royal throne, and you're the puny little person down here, but if you eat it, you're going to be like He is, and He can't tell you what to do anymore. And you don't have to be dependent on God anymore. You can be independent. You can do whatever you want to do because you're going to be God. It was the first lie, and it's the oldest lie in the book, and it continues today. We've talked about the New Age movement. What's the bottom line? To ascend into God. To become God. And it's the Mormon philosophy as well. It's the old lie. And we see it as the first lie and it's the oldest lie of Scripture. Folks, Satan's lie, and this is fascinating to me. If you want to see how intricate the word is and how it fits together, Satan's lie appeals to three things in Eve. Again, pay attention to these three things. Look at it. He says, number one, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Number two, that it was a delight to the eyes. And number three, it was desirable to make one wise. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John says, Do not love the things of the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, like a tree that appears to be good for food, the lust of the eyes, like fruit that was a delight to Eve's eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Eve, you'll be like God. These things are not from the Father, but are from the world. John reaches all the way back in the story of Adam and Eve, and he says, look at the three things that deceived Eve. That good food, a delight to the eyes, and you'll be like God. And he says, those three things, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, these are not from God. So by the way, if you're feeling these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, if those three things are drawing at you to do something, they're not of God. God doesn't use those tactics. As a matter of fact, God doesn't use tactics at all. As we read in Isaiah 45, He's wide open. He's just out there being who He is. He's totally in the light. He says, if you do this, you're going to die. That's the truth. And you can mess it up and try and rethink it however you want, but it's going to happen. Well, wait a minute, Rick. They didn't die. They didn't. Yeah, they did. That day, 
they became separated from God. It was in that moment where the spiritual death happened. It was some hundred years, hundreds of years later that the physical death happened, that the ball began rolling and death did enter the world. But the worst death, the death that grieves the Father's heart more than anything else is the spiritual death when we're separated from God. And that happened instantaneously when they bit into the fruit. Isaiah chapter 14 tells us what the source of Satan's own fall was. Tells us, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Both Satan wanted to elevate himself. It was for pride's sake. He wanted to put himself above the place of God. Satan is still bound to that same temptation today. And it's the one he goes back to over and over and over with humans. You can be like God. You can be independent. You can be self-willed. You don't have to listen to anybody. Do what you want to do. It's the greatest and oldest lie. By the way, I mentioned the old, the New Age. Do you know the whole idea of the Age of Aquarius, which is where the phrase New Age comes from, is the culmination of, quote, the mystical evolution of man. What is the mystical evolution of man? It's when mankind finally evolves to that state of being God. That's what the New Age teaches. And it's the oldest lie in the book.